positive, which no one had known until then, and had a dangerous infection. She told the brothers that we tried everything we could, but the man hadn't woken up from surgery and his condition was worsening. We're probably going to lose him, she said. The older brother, six inches taller than the younger, brushed a tear away from his eye and nodded. When they returned, the brothers stood at the foot of the bed and silently looked at the patient whose head was still wrapped in white gauze, his bed still propped up at a 45-degree angle. The hospital only had three patient rooms with doors, which were reserved for patients with contagious infections like tuberculosis or meningitis. Because the man's infection wasn't airborne, he had been placed in a large alcove with two other beds. There was just a curtain across the entrance and no partitions between the beds. On the patient's left was a 10-year-old boy with malaria. On the patient's right was a 58-year-old man with pneumonia. I watched as the patient's oxygen level dropped to 70%, then 54%, then 35%. I watched the heart rate as it went from a regular 100 beats per minute to erratically swinging from bradycardia, 30 to 40 beats per minute, to tachycardia in the 170s. The 10-year-old boy looked on with fear in his eyes. I retrieved a privacy screen. A large piece of cloth hung on a wheeled metal frame from the hallway and placed it between the 10-year-old and the man who was dying. I brought two chairs to the bedside so the brothers could at least sit down while they watched their sibling die. We had done everything we could do for him, but he was dying, rapidly decompensating before my eyes. I had other patients to see, medications to order, and lab results to review, and yet I continued to stand at his bedside. If I can't prevent his death, I thought, the least I can do is witness it. Maybe I was standing there for them, providing physical presence and visible support for the man and his brothers. Or maybe I was doing it for me, because it made me feel like I wasn't completely powerless. I felt like I was doing something, even if it was just watching the monitor as his vital signs became more and more unstable. After a few minutes of an erratic heart rate and an oxygen level so low the monitor couldn't register it anymore, the tracing of his heartbeat turned into a flat line on the monitor, and it started blinking zero. Asystole, the monitor blinked and alarmed loudly. I reached up and turned the monitor off. The last word Jesus said on the cross before he died echoed in my head in the profound silence that followed my patient's death. To Telestai, it is finished. The monitor's screen went black. It was over, just like that. As I stood there watching, the man's soul left his body. He was still sitting up in bed, his eyes closed, his head wrapped in gauze. He looked like he was sleeping and his body was still warm. But he was dead. He was gone. I wanted to journey with his soul to God. I wanted to hold his hand as he passed beyond the veil of the physical world and into the other side of eternity. I wanted to accompany him 
because I wanted to ask God, why? Why did some people in the world have so much while others had so little? Why were some people in the world so comfortable while others suffered so much? Why did we have life-saving treatment for some patients, but not for others? The injustice and unfairness were maddening. I felt helpless as I stood silently at the bedside, resting my hand on the younger brother's shoulder while he buried his face in his hands and wept. Later that afternoon, the 10-year-old boy with malaria lapsed into a coma and died. His father collapsed into the chair I'd drawn up to the boy's bedside when it became clear that his son was leaving this earth and there wasn't anything else we could do to keep him here. After his son took his final breath, the father frantically searched the pockets of his shirt.